And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show this morning. Of course, it is Thursday. That means Michael Leibowitz is joining me. And we got uh, a bit to talk about this morning because next week is the FOMC meeting, inflation report, lots of stuff going on. And today we have the first estimate of GDP for the fourth quarter. So, um, you know, this has been kind of what everybody's been looking for now. You know, is the economy slowing down? It's expected today that we're going to have a GDP growth rate just above 2%. That's kind of according to the Atlanta Fed and a couple of other measures. Um, that will be the slowest rate of growth that we've had in 2023. Of course, that's coming off the 4.9% growth that we had in the third quarter. So a pretty drastic drop in the growth rate of GDP just over a quarter. Um, this is going to kind of bring into question a little bit, of course, you know, what does this mean for the Fed? Uh, slower rates of economic growth is what they want, right? That means that demand is slowing within the economy. That should bring down inflation. So slower rates of economic growth certainly kind of bowed into that. Of course, we've been talking about this whole idea of a soft landing versus a recession. Economic growth slowing down here. Now, again, you have to understand that this first estimate of GDP is just an estimate of estimates. Uh, literally, there is no data behind this estimate. It is a survey of kind of the top blue chip economists. They kind of just go around and take a poll of all the different economists and say, well, what do you think GDP is going to be? Why do we think it's going to be this? Okay, we'll go with that number. Now, over the next two months, the actual data will get filtered in. We'll get those revisions over the next two months. Then a year from now, once we have all the data in, then we'll come back and revise this GDP number again. So anyway, this first GDP report today, don't put a whole lot into it. It's all a guess. There's not a lot of data behind it right now because it's still just now coming in uh, for the, because the end of the fourth quarter was just in December. So again, it's just, you know, what we see today is just a rough estimate. Um, obviously, the, the biggest component of that report today is going to be personal consumption expenditures. That's PCE. That is what you and I spend within the economy. So, again, you know, this is when you take a look at the economy today uh, as a function, it's nearly 70% consumption. So, what happens for the average American matters? Wage growth, savings those type of things that lead into them spending money. Because as you and I spend money, that's what creates the revenues for companies. And that is what ultimately leads to earnings. So there is a connection between economic growth and earnings. And, and right now, estimates for earnings are extremely elevated. Uh, estimates for this year are extremely elevated, which doesn't really jive with this idea that if we are going to have a slow rate of, uh, of even a soft landing in the economy, it certainly doesn't support double-digit growth rates in earnings. And so this is going to be one of the challenges that we have later this year is matching valuations of companies relative to the earnings growth that we're getting. Now, again, if you take a look at where the market's been kind of running this year, it's right back to what we saw last year. It's been the, the, these top 7, 10 stocks, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Meta, NVIDIA, and, and primarily it's been NVIDIA and Meta, which are up sharply this year already. NVIDIA is up, I think, already 20% this year. So 
you know, it's already a very sharp advance in those big top tier companies. Uh, the rest of the market not doing as much. So, uh, you know, again, this has been, we're back to that very kind of bifurcated market. And ultimately at the end of the day, it is gonna be about earnings. So here we are right in the middle of earnings season and you know, we're already starting to see companies coming in. You know, we haven't had a lot of, of this, you know, reporting season so far, but the average kind of report so far has been about a negative 3.4%. So it's not been a real stellar earnings season. And that certainly is, is kind of problematic when you start looking at a market that's pinging new highs every day and just kind of continues to advance here. And again, as we talked about uh, just recently, this, you know, this is gonna matter at some point. Valuations matter. I was tweeting out this morning, I said, you know, if you know, as you know, for Mike and I, you know, we're fundamental investors. So we like to look at earnings and fundamentals and invest the way you're supposed to invest. And I tweeted out this morning, it's like walking my dogs, you know, they're all being nice, well behaved, you know, when we're out on the on the pathway walking, doing what they're supposed to do. That's the fundamentals, right? Investing in fundamentals. And then a squirrel runs across the path, all hell breaks loose, <laughs> that's the growth stocks. And right now, you know, the, if you take a look at where the chase is in the market, it's all in growth stocks, value stocks, really underperforming by a large degree. Okay, here's what you need to know before the bell this morning, though. Markets, uh, again, uh, like I just said, markets are continuing to rally here. Again, this, this buying stampede that we are in is now very, very long in the tooth. This is one of the longer buying stampedes that we've had in quite some time. It's, it, it's actually surpassing the length of time we had this buying stampede back here in June and July. So again, these buying stampedes can last a long time. Valuations, you know, uh, don't matter at this point. It's all about momentum. Markets are back to very overbought levels. We're back on a buy signals we talked about yesterday. So, so this all supports this idea of what's happening in the markets right now, this kind of just this push higher as, as you know, we just kind of continue to have this money flow into the markets. That's okay. Again, there's nothing wrong with this. And again, I, I, you don't fight this trend at the moment, but just realize that this is going to end and it's probably going to end sometime soon. Now, when I say end, don't go freak out and say, oh my gosh, Lance said a big correction's coming. We're going to have a correction of some sort at some point, right? Um, but again, a three to a 5% correction, absolutely normal. With any given year, a 5% correction is normal. Even a 10% correction in a given year is very normal. So if you start thinking about a market that's at 4850-ish right now, 4860, you know, a 10% correction from here, absolutely normal, but that would wipe out a very big chunk of this advance that we've had from, from last October. And again, very similar to what we saw uh, last year as well, that 10% decline that we had that took out a big chunk of that advance that ran from February to July, that got taken out with that correction and then we rallied back. So again, expect a correction here. This is, it's going to happen. It is just a function of time. Markets cannot maintain overbought conditions indefinitely. They can stay overbought a lot longer than you think, but they don't stay overbought forever. So again, when we get this correction, that's going to give you a really good opportunity to add some exposure to your portfolio, you know, re reposition stuff. But think about, you know, look at your portfolio here because we are getting long. You know, if positions have gotten really overweight in your portfolio, good time to trim those back a bit, to trim them back to target weights. You know, things that aren't performing well, look to replace those, you know, opportunistically as well, because 
even though a lot of these stocks are not performing with the markets, the market is lifting them, right? It's the old, you know, the old statement about you know, the rising tide lifts all boats. Even really underperforming stocks are getting lifted by the markets a bit. So if this is, if you're looking for an opportunity to exit a position, this is probably a really good time to start looking to do that because if they lagged on the way up, they're going to lean on the way down. So just think about that as you start looking at your portfolio to rebalance risk, et cetera. So that's what you need to know before the bell this morning. When we come back, we'll pick up with Michael Leibowitz. What's the Fed going to do next week? The question is, is are they going to try to walk back some of this exuberance? We'll talk about that next on The Real Investment Show. Investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Looking for clarity for your investments in the new year? You must attend our 2024 Economic Summit, Navigating Markets in a Presidential Cycle, featuring Greg Valier. Trump will be a big presence. The bigger story, in my opinion, is how weak Joe Biden is going to be. Is the Fed finished tightening? Liquidity, I think, is underestimated. Will rates ease this summer? States are still flush with cash. They haven't spent all their money from the pandemic relief. Bill. How will the election affect your investments? I don't see any political figure right now who can bring the country conclusively back together again. Register now for our 2024 Economic Summit, Navigating Markets in a Presidential Cycle, featuring Greg Valier with special guest Adam Tackard, plus Michael Lebowitz and Lance Roberts, Saturday, January 27th at the Hotel Celeste Houston. Navigating Markets in a Presidential Cycle, featuring Greg Valier, Saturday, January 27th at the Hotel Celeste Houston. Register Open now at realinvestmentadvice.com. Realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. Michael Leibwich joining me as well. Talk a little bit about the Fed. It's, it's interesting now because... You know, a little step back here. We wrote about this a couple of times in our newsletter and, and some, some of our daily market commentaries as well at the website. But just a kind of a little recap here. There was a very interesting switch that occurred uh, with the Fed. And, and, you know, it reminds me a lot of 2018. We've talked about this before as well. You know, in, in September of 2018, the Fed's hiking rates were nowhere near the neutral rate. The market starts selling off. And, you know, there's a lot of pressure from the political side of the aisle. Uh, Trump was putting a lot of pressure on Powell at that point to stop hiking rates. He was ruining the economy, messing everything up, doesn't know what he's doing. And everybody thought at the time that Jerome Powell was a different animal. This was the big statement, right? Jerome Powell's a different breed. He's not like Janet Yellen and he's not like Ben Bernanke. He's not political. He's a fundamental guy. And, you know, he's not going to count. And, of course, he immediately kowtowed to the, <laughs> to the presidency and the politics and has been a political animal ever since. And 
you know, it's interesting because we're seeing that same kind of setup here. Here we are moving in, in into an election year, and I'm not saying that the Fed policy change has anything to do with politics. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, but um, we're moving to an election year, and then on December the 1st, we're, just to kind of paraphrase, we're nowhere near the neutral rate on December the 1st. On December the 13th, we're at the neutral rate. So what, what Jerome Powell actually said on December the 1st is like, we're not even considering rate cuts at this point. On December 13th is like, we're talking about how to do rate cuts now. A very rapid change. And, and Mike and I have, have talked a little bit in the past about you know, what, you know, we talked about the repo market and what's going on there. And like, you know, was that the reason why? But, you know, again, the Fed is trying. And, and one of Mike's longstanding premises is, is that if the Fed... You know, the Fed's got to keep fighting inflation because if you know if they lose control of inflation or they lose credibility, that's the big issue. So they're always going to fight that inflation. But at this point, it seems pretty clear they've just given up on inflation. It's like, yeah, inflation's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, we're going to cut rates. But that created a very big reversal in financial liquidity, and this is what's been the spark behind this massive rally in the market. So here's the question, Mike: As we get ready to go into next week for the next Fed meeting, do you? Or do we th think that we're going to start maybe getting a little bit of regret for making such a verbal change and, and kind of unleashing the hounds of hell in, in the market, so to speak, you know, in terms of uh, financial conditions? Do you, do you think they stick by their guns of what they're doing? Or do you think they try to walk something back here a little bit? You know what? I, I, I think the answer, who owns the Fed, Lance? The banks. The banks own literally the commercial banks within each Fed district own that bank. The bank is not, you know, it may seem like it's an agency of the U.S. government. It's not. It's right. owned by the commercial banks within each district. They work for the banks, just like everyone works for their boss. Their their first goal is to please their boss. Their boss controls their their pay and their bonus and everything. Mm -hmm. So so you want to please your boss. That's what the Federal Reserve is doing now. Now, it would also please the boss to keep inflation down and to have a strong economy and maximum employment, everything the Fed is supposed to do. But I think at the end of the day, the Fed financial stability is the Fed's number one goal. And they'll never tell you that, but that's the number one goal. And the Fed has been, you know, I got to give them some credit, Lance. Mm -hmm. They're pretty good about reading the history books and understanding where they messed up and and talking about it and changing things but at the same time they make the same mistakes over and over again so they're great at lighting fires but they become better and better at putting fires out and um i i feel like they're very concerned that there's a liquidity crisis in the making you know we've talked about this before there was one in 2018 2019 the fed lowered rates in a good economy they did QE with treasury bills. It's still QE, call it whatever you want, but it's QE. And that was due to a liquidity crisis. The problem today is we're, what are we, five years removed from that. Right. There's more debt, more leverage in the system. So any kind of liquidity crisis is going to be worse today than it was in 2019. But the Fed has read the history book. They remember what happened four or five years ago. <clears throat> And I think they're taking steps right now to prevent something from occurring probably between somewhere between March and June or August. 
you know, last night they they put an end to the to the one year program that kind of bailed out the regional banks, and they they also took away a free money uh, profit arbitrage from the banks, which their boss is not going to be happy about. But there is only about a month left in that program anyway. Um, yeah, I saw, I, I saw, I saw. Yeah, that was very interesting. I get, and we'll come back and touch on that. But I thought that was a very interesting change that the Fed took away that arbitrage yesterday, it just right. kind of out of the blue. It just kind of showed up. But go ahead, we'll come back to that. But but, but at the same time, they're telling the banks they want the they want banks to use a discount window. There will be no stigma attached to it. In fact, they're trying to force them to use it at least once a year, so that no one knows when someone's using the discount window, which is just borrowing from the Federal Reserve in a usually in a crisis. No one borrows from it in good times. Um, so the Fed is prepping for a crisis. And again, they're not going to tell you this, but they're placing it over inflation. They're they're mm -hmm. putting it over everything. Um, maybe, you know, it's hard to tell if that's good or bad. If they can avoid a 2008 like banking crisis, maybe that's a good thing. But if inflation pops back in, pops back up, hard for me to say, uh, we got much bigger issues on our hand because the Fed will have to fight inflation, which involves taking liquidity away. Mm -hmm. I know. And this seems to be a real conundrum for the markets right now. And again, it's 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 been a little bit surprising, you know, how strong this rally's been since November. And, and look, we, we knew we were going to get a rally, you know, into the end of the year. But the, the, the strength of that rally was quite phenomenal. Just a tremendous amount of liquidity, you know, just uh, a record level of buybacks uh, being done by corporations at the same time. So it has been quite stunning. And that, of course, you know, the, 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 the problem for the Fed is that it, it boosts consumer confidence. If you take a look at just the recent consumer confidence survey that came out from University of Michigan last week, it was a very big jump. It's the highest level in confidence in two and a half years for consumers. And that's all driven by monetary conditions. Um, you take a look at in that survey, they asked people about, you know, where do you think stock prices will be in a year from now? Overwhelming responses that they'll be higher a year from now than they are currently. Uh, people that are that are confident in the retirement income hit an all time record. So, you know, it's it's amazing just in two months, you know, because back if you take that survey back in, you know, October, People were pretty bearish at that point, and two months later, they're they're exceedingly bullish. But the problem with that for the Fed is that that encourages people to go out and spend money. My you know my 401k accounts higher, my stock accounts higher. You know what assets ever I have are higher. Home prices are higher. I feel good about stuff, so I'm gonna go spend some extra money. That pushes inflation, and and we'll see what happens with the inflation report next week. But it's not gonna surprise me to see that come a little bit higher than expected. Yeah, but. Keep in mind, the inflation we had over the last few years was just as much supply related. Sure. Factories were shut down. Workers weren't working. Transportation systems were broken. And this was around the world. There's still, Lance, we're, we're buying a car. Mm -hmm. There's still chip shortages. Oh, they yeah. can't make enough cars. We, we have to go to Baltimore, which is an hour away, to get the car we want because we don't know when the next one will come to D.C., which is a big market. Right. So... So they're still having problems, a lot of problems. Uh, but those problems are largely, for most products, are largely gone. Right. So well, I've, I've heard in Baltimore, though, if you go to the right part of Baltimore, you can get a car for free. Well, we're going to that part of Baltimore, <laughs> and you'll be interesting to learn that 
buying a low jack on it is mandatory. <laughs> I'm sure it is. I, I'm not kidding. No, no, I'm, I'm sure I, we, it is. We didn't want it. We can't get it off the car. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, this isn't 2020, 2021. Fiscal stimulus is nothing like what it was back then. You know, we're, everyone's complaining because Biden's running a $2 trillion deficit. We ran a $2 trillion deficit in, in the first quarter of 2020 at a time when the supply lines were broken. So it doesn't mean inflation is coming back, you know, is going up to 7%, but it, but it also, you know, it's, it's probably means that inflation could be more stable at three, three and a half percent versus dropping all the way back down to two, two or 1%. But I think the environment is very different. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we just have to be careful not to assume that what happened a few years ago will happen again because the Fed is a little too easy or because consumers are confident because demand may increase a little. You know, at the end of the day, consumers can be as exuberant as they want. They still need the means mm. to, uh, well, no, to that's, spend. And borrowing well, rates and are look, still very high. Right, right. And there, look, there's a very big gap between, you know, when we talk about the economy and we talk about, you know, stock prices and those type of things, you know, 90% of the market is owned by 10% of income earners. So there's, there's a big chunk of the economy that it doesn't even participate really in the financial markets. Right. They're just struggling to make ends meet. Wage growth is declining on a real basis. You know, so so again, yeah, for the, for the average American, they certainly don't, you know, feel like this is a booming economy, which, you know, it's also, it's, it's also kind of to the point of the article that I wrote on Tuesday um, I was talking about this on Tuesday. Newsmax asked me to write an article for them asking, is like, you know, how can the market be hitting all-time highs when everybody feels so bad about the economy? And so I went and looked at a, a poll from Axios, and he's, they're right. I mean, you know, most of these polls, people are very downbeat about the state of the economy because of what's going on in their personal lives. But yet we have a stock market bringing up all-time highs. All right, quick break. We'll come back. Um, you know, as we say, to start looking at the Fed meeting, inflation next week, those type of things, we'll talk some more about, you know, kind of what the risks are for the market um, if the Fed does make a change to their statement, right? We'll talk about that next. Don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com i was just listening to the uh, during the break we were playing that snippet of, of my comments about scrawlish you know that new that new kind of writing language that's kind of the supplement for now it's it's the new millennial version or gen z version of shorthand but I was actually, uh, over the last week, um, I, my wife's been traveling. She's in Geneva uh, on business. And so I've had the evenings to myself. And instead of, you know, usually I spend time watching Housewives with her. I've been, <coughs> I picked up and started rereading uh, Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit 451. Um, something dawned on me, by the way. Uh, so if you read Fahrenheit 451, um, 
the, the world has become all digital, right? We've digitized everything. And so we digitized all these books. And, and so we've put everything up into computers and we don't, we don't need the books anymore, right? So that's why the firemen now burn the books. And, you know, so as I was reading about this and thinking about it, and of course, you know, when the, the books are digitized, there's small little tweaks to the books. Like the freedom of speech is an example. And the, when they digitize the Constitution, change the freedom of speech to you, you have the right to freedom of speech, except for these certain things. You have the right to bear arms only under these conditions, right? Just small tweaks. And so we kind of, you know, rabbit hole what we all thought was the case. And now it's all digital. And so it was like, well, that must be the new truth, right? So that's the whole point of four, Fahrenheit 451. But I got to think about this. I was, I was, and I was talking to my son. I said, you know, it's interesting that they stopped teaching y'all cursive. And he's like, yeah, no, nobody teaches cursive in school anymore. And it's a faster way to write. And my son's printing is terrible, um, <laughs> so, which it's almost cursive. His print is so bad. But anyway, I started thinking about this, right? We stopped teaching kids to read cursive, which, you know, for us, us boomers, right, and Gen Xers, if we ever have a battle, we'll just write all our battle plans in cursive. Nobody will be able to read them. But kids can't read, read cursive. We've digitized all these documents. What are, the five, what are some of the most important documents in the world written in cursive? The Constitution, the Magna Carta, the Bill of Rights, they're all written in, in cursive. And if you can't read cursive, there's the issue. Fahrenheit 451 comes real. Anyway, I'm just I'm just saying it was kind of a it was just an interesting little revelation. I was just I was reading the book right and just and and going through it and talking to my son about this whole thing about cursive. It just kind of dawned on me. It's like hmm, interesting. That's why I have the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, framed in my office at home. So <laughs> I have a copy. <laughs> I have a copy. If anybody ever wants to argue, I have a copy. <laughs> Anyway, um, so talking about uh, inflation, uh, just for the break, I thought it was interesting because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got to chat up right now as, you know, you're watching the show. By the way, if you're watching the show, thank you very much. Be sure and like and subscribe. Click that little bell icon. We appreciate it very much. Um, it's interesting, though, because, you know, as we talk about inflation, everybody has a different view about inflation. Uh, there's one comment here about three, three and a half percent sounds like the camel, you know, peeking his nose in the tent, which is a fair statement, right? We're going to have a period of higher inflation. The problem is, is inflation is a function of economic growth. So if economic growth is slowing, you're going to have lower rates of inflation. And, and, and yeah, you know, we may be kind of stabilizing right, right, right now around three, three and a half percent, but we're talking about year over year rates of change. So just think about this. If, Next year, this time, next year, if the prices of things that are generating 3 3.5% today are the same next year, inflation will be zero, right? Because that's the way we measure inflation. It's year-over-year -year rates of change. So if inflation is going to remain at 3 3.5%, that means that this time next year, everything's going to have to be 3 to 3.5% higher. And that's the problem for the Fed. The Fed needs inflation to be closer to 2% in order to kind of maintain monetary policy, keep prices under control, those type of things. And that's going to also correlate with economic activity. If economic activity is slowing towards 2%-ish, then inflation will slow towards 2%-ish because those two, because again, as we talked about earlier, we're going to see GDP today. 70% of that is consumption. 
some of it's uh, government spending, business investment, net exports, but 70% of it roughly is personal consumption. It's what you and I buy in the economy. So if the economy is slowing down, that means we're buying less, which means inflation comes down. And that's kind of what you know the Fed is hoping. The Fed's hoping that they can go ahead and cut rates and they can pull some of the pressure off the markets because their fear, of course, is if they keep rates here because of all the debt, and this is something Mike's talked about before, with as much debt as we have in the system, at current interest rates, that's a pretty heavy break on economic activity. And particularly as all this monetary excess that we put in, stimulus checks and everything else kind of comes out, that's a pretty heavy break. So they're going to try to ease off that break to keep the economy from falling into a deeper recession. And they're hoping that they can just kind of glide the plane in onto a, a runway and it's all going to be nice and dandy and, and safe and a soft landing. We'll see, right? They, they've never done that successfully before. Maybe this will be the first time. We'll see. But, you know, the, the ability to sustain 3 3.5% inflation 12 months from now is probably going to be fairly tough to do just because of where we're heading economically. Mike? Well, what if the Fed knows, not thinks, not forecasts, but knows that inflation will be lower, especially over the next six months? That changes the equation, right? Right. Then, right? So, so there's a couple things worth pointing out. And we wrote about both of these in recent commentaries over the last couple of days. One is a thing called trueflation. And what that is, it, it recreates inflation, CPI inflation. It has a very high correlation with CPI, but it tends to lead it because it uses real-time data. It doesn't impute prices, which you know tries to figure out the price of one thing based on the price of another. It doesn't use hedonics. So if the price of oranges goes up a lot, we don't it it the BLS will replace it with apples, whereas we may still eat oranges. Mm -hmm. uh, and it doesn't do a lot of the mathematical smoothing and seasonal adjustments that CPI does. Right now, that number is like in the 180s. That's again using real time data. And I think the big reason for that is because of we've talked about this before rent prices, shelter prices. One third of CPI is rent. Now, the BLS, this is very interesting. The BLS puts out a new tenant rent index. So it's just new tenants for the month. Rents fell four point something percent last month. And they've been that growth, the, the rate of new rent prices has been declining rapidly. But rents, rents are interesting because, you know, most rents are 12 months. So it's almost like comparing year over year to month over month. Even if rents fall 4% for the new tenants in one month, that's only one twelfth of the rent calculation. So you need for that to happen for a while before rents really start coming down. But every real-time rent index is pretty much flat or negative. So that's telling you that the rents today, if you're going to go rent an apartment, there's no change versus last year, or it's even a little bit less than last year. So rent inflation, let's just call it zero. One third of the number should be close to zero. According to the Fed, that number is roughly 5%. So you do your math and inflation, if you were using just real-time rent, forget everything else, which also has a lot of issues with it, is probably close to 2%. And look, the Fed, the Fed, these numbers come from that new, new tenant index comes from the BLS. 
they have access to this. They talk to those statisticians, mathematicians, and economists that come up with that number. So maybe they just have a lot of confidence that inflation will be a target in six months. Maybe they're concerned that inflation, like you said, Lance, Mm -hmm. maybe they're concerned that the price of goods today will be the same price in a year from now, meaning 0% inflation. Because I guarantee you the Fed will be panicking (laughs) and doing QE, cutting rates to zero if the price of goods over the next year haven't changed. Right. And that's crazy. It sounds crazy, but they will be panicking. Right. And and look, that's a super important point. I I think this gets lost on on the majority of of things that are are people that are out there, because, again, for the Fed, inflation is somewhat controllable. Right. Because I can hike rates. And if I hike rates enough, people will stop spending. I can just kind of whip them into, into shape and bring inflation down. The big fear of the Fed is is deflation because deflation becomes psychological. I can cut rates to zero. I can do QE. But if the the psychology is that, well, I'm just going to Mike's going to just wait on buying the car because the price of the car just keeps going lower every week. He's just going to keep waiting to buy the car. Well, the more that people wait to buy something because of the psychological thought of 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 declining prices, that just fuels the cycle, right? So the more I wait, the more I cut prices, the more I wait, the more I have to cut prices to get something sold. And we have still have a very large inventory build. If you take a look at the amount of inventories on the books of businesses, they're still very high relative to the long-term trend. We talked about this yesterday uh, or Monday, actually, this re- the, uh, the return to just-in-time inventory management. Um, that we used to use prior to the pandemic. Well, now that we've been out of the pandemic and and businesses are getting kind of what they think is normal again, they're starting to cut those inventories, but they're still elevated. So the, the one of the, the price pressures is the reduction of that inventory, because in order to get rid of inventory, I've got to cut prices to get it moved, right? So deflation, and, and this is a, just such an important point, Deflation is a huge fear of the Fed because it's not controllable. It's psychological, as opposed to inflation, which I can just hike rates to solve. That's the problem for the Fed, and Mike's point is absolutely right. We'll come back. We'll wrap up the conversation, uh, talk a little bit about how this translates into the markets here um, this year. Because, again, it's a, it's early this year already, all new highs. Can we sustain it, um, particularly with the Fed? Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So welcome back to the show this morning. Um, Lots of earnings out today. Um, We are, again, we are just right in the middle of the midst now, the heat of earnings season. And thank God it's going to quit raining in Houston today. Um, American Airlines, Alaska Airlines, uh, Capital One, Comcast, Dow, uh, Humana, Intel, 
Levi's, um, Southwest Airlines, T-Mobile, Union Pacific, Valero, Visa. So some big companies out today. This is going to continue. And the next week is all the big tech stocks. So we're going to have, you know, really the market movers going to be next week from an earnings perspective. Um, but talking a little bit about the Fed now. So next week, you know, the big question is, is will they, won't they, right? You know, so is the Fed going to maintain, yeah, we're, we're going to be cutting rates or are they going to try to maybe walk it back a bit, you know, because of this big loosening of financial conditions got well ahead of probably what the market intended. Well, you know, we'll, we'll see what the Fed does. And again, I, I have no idea, but you know, it, it, it has been an interesting shift in their perspective over the last couple of months. But here's the problem for the markets. Right now, the markets are pricing in three different scenarios. 80% probability of five to seven rate hikes this year and a soft landing within the economy. There is a 0% probability of a hard landing and about a 20% chance of something a little not not recessionary you know maybe slightly recessionary maybe you know just you know that there's about a 20% chance of that outcome right but by and large everybody's the wall street's expecting no recession and 5 to 7 rate rate cuts this year the problem is the fed's talking about 3 so there's this big disconnect right now between what the fed is saying and this is in their projections that they put out each quarter and what the markets are expecting. And, right, and, that, and so that differential leaves room for disappointment. Either the market's got to reprice itself for three rate cuts or, to Mike's point earlier, the Fed may be cutting more than three if something else is happening in the economy. And, and so the question, Mike, is you know, how, how is the market going to resolve this considering you know we've got this kind of rather strong exuberance in the markets right now um, we're back to the 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 mega seven you know stock chase in the markets uh, like I said earlier Nvidia is already up like I think like 20 percent this year so far AMD is not far behind it but um, you know we you know those AI stocks meta are, are doing great everything else is really kind of limping out of the gate this year how does the market resolve you know that potential between five to six to seven rate cuts versus the three the Fed's talking about? Well, I think time will resolve it. You know, we'll see how the economy actually behaves. You know, you said this last year, when everyone thinks there's a recession, there's not going to be a recession. Well, no one's predicting a recession anymore. <laughs> exactly. So is this the year we get a recession? And if we do get a recession, it's probably going to be a lot more than seven. Right. So, so my kind of thinking for this year is either the Fed's right and there's somewhere between zero and three, or we're going to get something like 12 or 15. They're going to bring rates all the way back down to, you know, one percentage, you know, somewhere between zero and two yeah. percent. So I think the market's kind of playing maybe both sides of that. Um, and I think over time, you know, kind of we got to get past March. That's the one year anniversary of the, the regional banking crisis. That's uh, when the Fed banking plan goes away. Uh, that's when the Fed's repo book comes down to zero. So there's no, in theory, no more, not much excess liquidity in the system. And I think we'll start to get a better, the Fed will start to get a better idea of what they have to do or don't have to do to kind of support all the debt and leverage in the system. If it turns out <clears throat> that there's not much to do, 
in March that that this liquidity crisis that they're probably worried about isn't going to happen. We're only going to get one or two. They're going to be really slow. They're going to focus back on inflation, just making sure inflation gets down. And conversely, the economy can slow down pretty quickly. Um, and, you know, if the economy slows and you get some sort of liquidity crisis uh, for who knows what reason, you know, again, we, we could be talking about 1% Fed funds and inflation below 2% and the Fed quickly shifting from QT to QE. Um, as far as this meeting, I'd be shocked if they lowered rates. I wouldn't be shocked if they continue to talk about reducing QT, maybe put some sort of date range on it, you know, something like but somewhere between March and August, we hope to put out more plans on how we we, we have probably reduce the rate that we're doing QT, uh, try to talk that up. So again, it's not a market surprise. The Fed doesn't like shocking markets. And they've already, they've kind of hinted that they're talking about reducing tapering QT. Uh, so I think that'll be kind of the big news in next week's Fed meeting. Um, I, I don't think they're going to be any more granular on when they think they're going to cut rates. You know, I, I, while they're concerned that there's a potential crisis, I think they still are concerned about inflation popping back up again. Mm -hmm. So they're going to want to try to keep a lid on that as well. If there is, if the Fed cuts rates or if they say rate cuts are imminent or QT ending QT is imminent, that tells you there's a banking crisis brewing. And which, the Fed which, the, is, which in theory, the market should not respond well to. No, no. So, in, in theory. Uh, you know, this is going to be one of those meetings where Powell, the, my guess is that the minutes from the meeting mm -hmm. could be virtually identical. There's not going to be much change in the minutes. Right. Powell's tone, the words he uses, uh, if someone happens to ask the right question that he's not really ready for and he kind of leaks something out or says something differently than than we thought. That's the potential for surprise. And it could be a good surprise or a bad surprise, right. like every Fed meeting. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think the kind of March through June meetings will be the much more interesting ones. Yeah. You know, and the, and the whole thing about the tapering of the, you know, quantitative tightening. And again, you know, we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks. We've written about it um, in the newsletter. You've written about it as well. Um, talking about, you know, kind of what's going on with this reverse repo, the pop up in the, in the uh, kind of the overnight lending rates, the, the SOFR. Um, you know, and that's all been a function of this drain of liquidity that's happening because of QT. And so the, I think the real interesting question is, is, you know, do they just taper QT, which is interesting considering they really didn't reduce the balance sheet all that much to begin with. But right. do, do they actually start talking about QE this year in, in some form? You know, uh, Bostic and others are saying, hey, don't expect rate cuts till quarter three. Maybe that's the case, but at some, but in quarter three, are we also talking about starting to re-expand the balance sheet to put liquidity back into the system? Right. And, you know, keep in mind, inflation is not just about the Fed. In fact, the Fed has been fighting prior to COVID. The Fed was fighting, doing everything they could to get inflation up to 2%. And despite very easy mm -hmm. policies, they right. couldn't get it to sustain itself above 2%. So we're in a deflationary macro environment. Mm -hmm. We've had a shock to the system over the last few years that's creating more inflation. So, you know, this is what the Fed's working with. The Fed is probably equally scared of inflation going to 5% as it is going to zero or 1%. 
And I think they're 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 finally they're finally comfortable that the balance of those two risks risks is back to even. I think prior to very recently, the risk was that we start going back up. But now I think they're starting to sense that the risk is also that we go back down to zero or one percent. And then they have to do more QE. They have to lower rates and uh, they don't particularly like keeping rates at zero and doing QE. So you know, it brings up an interesting topic or question anyway, which is, do you think the administration, politicians and the Federal Reserve all combined because they were all complicit in, you know, the checks to households and the shutting down of the economy? Do you think they learned their lesson? Uh, not a not to shut down the economy, but B, not to send checks directly to households. Unfortunately, I think they did learn their lesson and they like that lesson. I, you know, I even think with inflation next. This, <laughs> this is what scares me, Lance. Yeah. When we get the next recession, that's probably not a good recession. They're right. going to start writing checks yep. and the Fed's going to sign those checks with QE and with low interest, low or zero interest rates. And that can be inflationary, as we saw. Right. So well, no, it, my, it would, my concern it, it, it's is not, that. It's not it's not, you know, it could be inflationary. It will be inflationary. Right. Because you you increase spending in the economy. And so the question is, is you know, how will they respond? They say, okay, did they learn their lesson? Say, okay, if we're going to do this, if we're going to send checks to households in the recession, do we also start raising interest rates immediately, right, to taper off the coming inflationary impact? I'm right. just curious what, you know, lessons they may have learned from this, you know, looking back, because, you know, they thought inflation was transient. It wasn't. And, you know, did they learn their lesson about and again, it's all it's also, you know, conjecture at this point, but it'll be interesting to find out when we get there. Yeah, exactly. I think the Fed did learn some lessons and they always talk about the lessons they learned in the 70s and other periods. Mm -hmm. So I think they're always learning. And it's a very, you know, economics is very dynamic and complex and it's changing. And it's a lot of it's based on consumer and, and you know, behaviors and rational behaviors that are just unpredictable. So, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I think the lessons learned are probably on the inflationary side over the long run, not over the next six months, nine months, year, but over the long run, they probably have inflationary implications. Right. No, and look, I, I don't disagree with you that checks to households are, are the new go-to, right? So it'll be cut rates to zero, do QE, send checks to households. That's the new playbook, right? Because it gets there's, you it gets you elected and it keeps you in office. There's a reason Trump wanted his name on those checks. Exactly. It's great marketing. You <laughs> can't beat it with a stick. All right. Um, look, we've got a, a handful of tickets left for this weekend seminar. If you want to come to the Economic Summit, Michael Leibowitz is coming in tomorrow. He's going to be there to talk about bonds. I'm going to cover markets. Adam and I are going to have a one-on-one -on -one, uh, with Mike um, talking about markets, outlooks, bonds, a whole variety of topics, and then, of course, our, our keynote speaker on the political uh, election cycle. So if you want to come, tickets are, we have a few tickets still left. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, and we'll see you back here tomorrow for Financial Fitness Friday. Have a great day.